2: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop.
1: Tonight we are gathered to discuss and celebrate the life and work of Walter Benjamin, perhaps the greatest cultural theorist of the 20th century, and also to mark the anniversary of his death, which I think is in two days, 75th anniversary. Our panel this evening comprises Gareth Evans, Esther Leslie, and Brian Dillon. Gareth is our main host His official title is Curator of Film at the Whitechapel Gallery. His unofficial title is Creator of some of the most extraordinary cultural events that happen in London.
3: Well, Thank you very much, David, for that ridiculously uh, (coughs) generous introduction. When when David says, uh, um, I'll be giving full barges of everyone, of course, that doesn't include the audience. Um, just in case you're all expecting major CPVs to be announced. Um, it's a delight to be uh, sitting up here with uh, Esther and Brian, but just to be clear, while I am officially part of the panel structure, I'm very much tonight the person who looks to raise arms and then communicates those uh, spoken utterances back to these two. I'm absolutely not in anything like the zone, that they are in relation to. Well, let's, what should we call him? Should we agree a, a name for evening? Should we call him Walter Benjamin? Which sounds a little bit strange coming from me, but probably great coming from all of you. Or Walter Benjamin, which sounds a little bit like um, one of the guys I saw on um, the tube coming in. There were two men in late middle age. You actually could be um, uh, stereotypical since I'm approaching that phase myself. um LRB readers. Um, however, most of you, I guess, will not sort of be proudly um, uh, discussing, in fact, <coughs> eulogising the contents of one of their bags, which was a new range of m M&M and merchandise. And this was actually vacuum sealed and appeared to have come straight out of the factory. One guy clearly had higher status in the m M&M and merchandising world than the other. There were beach towels and bath towels with special cummerbund kinds of wrapper. And there were various kinds of boxes with all the colours and characters from your favourite. But um, the point about this, of course, is that this is exactly the kind of shard of urban life that you would like Walter Benjamin to engage with in, in a major way. You put that together with the fact that I noticed coming across the street here that those countdown um, clocks on the uh, traffic crossing seem to start at 14 seconds. So why is that? What's going on with 14? And does it really mean something when a whole stack of rain-soaked architonics magazines Not architronics or architectronics, but architonics are sitting soaked outside the present a So these kind of things, these elements put together, would be the kind of inquiry that will obviously allow Mr. Benjamin to riff an extraordinary uh, uh, extraordinary uh, uh, eloquence insight, or you can switch those syllables around, um, about the state of things today. So obviously he is no longer with us, but we are delighted to uh, celebrate his extraordinary life of work and to mark the 75th anniversary of his very tragic death. But Brian and Lester, as I said, are superbly qualified to both take on that critical commentary about urban life, but also to celebrate to Benjamin's life and work with us. I'm sure they need no uh, extended introduction, except to say that they are with authors of numerous fascinating books. They both blog, extend their critical commentaries across the culture, and also have very active editorial roles in a range of journals. We have a number of books, and both of them, of course, here today. We purchase and of course, the wider range of Benjamin titles, which um, have been neatly summarised uh, in this current issue. Are there, and There are others that um, will constantly emerge, I'm sure. Uh, Verso, who are our partner tonight, along with Reaction Books, will be publishing the Storyteller uh, by Benjamin next year. And Jessica, I believe you are involved in it. Yes,
4: um, yeah? to a to of PhD. Two PhD, PhD students. PhD as well.
3: Fantastic. Um, and I also noticed a small green book. Um, I hope it's in here. I'm sure it is. My um, pilot books, Benjamin's uh, Sonnets, for those of you who are poetic, completed. So that's a nice uh, edition uh, to, to add to the library. Anyway, that's enough from me. It's a wonderful uh, event we have in store for you. Esther's going to kick off, um, and then Brian will follow with a short presentation each for the conversation. Open it out, of course, to you. Please do well, Esther Leslie. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you. Thanks, everybody. I've I've just written... We've been asked to write 10-minute little papers to, to begin the discussion, so I wanted to think about Walter Benjamin as a writer, and happily Brian is picking up these themes as well. So Thinking about him as a writer or as many writers, and I think one of the ways in which he's increasingly coming into view because of new translation projects, because of the new re-editing of his collected works in German and so on, is as a a participant in the fullest sense in various genres of writing. So he's an adept writer of reviews, sometimes blisteringly (coughs) critical, uh, of essays, of radio lectures for children as well as for adults. Radio plays, short stories, poems, film treatments, memoirs, polemics, diaries, and and other forms that, in a sense, he himself has has sort of invented. And also, not to forget amongst these these genres, the most fragmentary notes, uh, the coining of kind of enigmas and riddles, his passion for for the riddle, the puzzle, and and so on, making that into a kind of art form. He had an extraordinarily developed sense of what it means to write and also what are the conditions of writing. We see him formulating something about the conditions of writing in a a piece he wrote called The Writer's Techniques in 13 Theses, which includes the modernistic embrace of defamiliarization, as here. Do not write the conclusion of a work in your familiar study. You would not find the necessary courage there. He also avers that pedantic adherence to certain papers, pens, inks is beneficial. No luxury, but an abundance of these utensils is indispensable. And this indeed was something he practiced, or wanted to practice. There's a passage in a letter from January 1934 to Adorno's wife, Gretel Carplus, who he was very close to. And Benjamin, at this point, is at his poorest, he's barely surviving in exile in Paris, and he's keeping warm by day by hanging out in the the Bibliothèque Nationale.
0: And he writes
4: as a request in relation to uh, his vast, incomplete project, the Arcades project. He says, now I have a small and bizarre request regarding the Arcades papers. Since the first setting up of the numerous sheets on which the notes are to reside, I've always used one and the same type of paper, namely a normal letter pad of white Max Krauser paper. Now my supplies of this are exhausted, and I would very much like to preserve the external uniformity of this bulky and thorough manuscript. Would it be possible for you to arrange for one of those pads to be sent to me? Now it's not an affectation that he asks for this particular paper. It's to do here with the shape of the thoughts and their organization into files. The spatial arrangement, perhaps one adopted itself from the arcades, these passageways between streets, that spatial arrangement is part of his thinking and writing. Of course, circumstance compelled him to develop an art of writing rather on scraps, on library receipts or backs of envelopes or cafe bills. And with this improvisation, this poetry of small means, it echoed for me with something Trotsky wrote. A poem which sings the skyscrapers, the dirigibles, and the submarines can be written in a faraway corner of some Russian province on yellow paper and with a broken stub of a pencil. In order to inflame the bright imagination of that province, it's quite enough if the skyscrapers, the dirigibles, and the submarines are in America the human word is the most portable of all materials, which makes me wonder how much the spaces that Benjamin often wrote of, such as the arcades or Moscow streets or Naples, were in some way ruined spaces, ones obliterated by history and power, ones that he had to conjure up into his imagination through a portability of the word, which might be emblematized then in that suitcase that was being carried over the Pyrenees 75 years ago and was lost. Conjuring in the imagination is certainly something Benjamin impels in others, and it leads to much reflection on his potential afterlives, as in David Kishlick's The Manhattan Project, where Benjamin finds a place in the USA in the New York Public Library, dying at the age of 90 from a fall on its steps. Or Lutz Dambeck's idea that he gets to the US and hooks up with Timothy Leary and extends his own hashish experiments into LSD. Or John Shads, the late Walter Benjamin, which finds him on a council estate in Oxay, in the post-war. There's an absurdity as well as a compensation at work here. Benjamin lends himself to becoming a fictional character as if he were himself incomplete. And something in this cuts against Benjamin's own sense of redemption, which is really much more to do with, in Peter Jandu's phrase, hope in the past. It's not the fantasy afterlives that absolve us, but rather, he suggests, a looking backwards to a sense of what might always have been, always have been possible. Not afterlives, but parallel lives, and the awakening of the dead, such that they might start again, rather than end differently. That's the energetic impulse of Benjamin's work, I think, because he was someone attuned to the moment, not to the future, which was, after all, mainly bleak. Take, for example, his description of writing before and in 1933. He wrote Experience and Poverty that year. It was an essay reflecting on the ongoing effects of the First World War, And he begins with an illustration of a time before the war when, apparently, wisdom was passed down through the generations from mouth to ear. And he relates a fable about how a father taught his sons the merits of hard work by fooling them into thinking that there was buried treasure in the vineyard by the house. The turning of soil in the vain search for gold results in a real treasure, a wonderful crop of fruit. Once, observes Benjamin, There was a world in which in this way or another, the old passed down their wisdom to the young. This wisdom was born of experience which was passed on to the coming generation in the form of practical lessons, showing the young what might be taken forward from what had been learnt in a lifetime of trying. Such experience and its mode of communication meshed with the fairy and folk tale, vectors of wisdom, in a world in which yesterday was much like today. In retelling the tale, Benjamin himself evokes a mode of communicating experience, storytelling, that is becoming outmoded, and in so doing he estranges that mode so that he might better outline the needs of the present. (coughs) He goes on to report how the coming of the World War interrupted definitively this handing on and down by interrupting the modes of experience of the generation who came before and after war. The good and bountiful soil of the fable becomes the sticky and destructive mud of the trenches, which will bear no fruit, but only molder as a graveyard. Where do you hear words from the dying that last and pass from one generation to the next like a precious ring? asked Benjamin. Nowhere, he replies, and he goes on to explore why this is the case. It's not simply that experiences before the war are not consistent with those after in a world that has changed, Rather, experience itself, as a way of relating to and with the world, is diminished. A mode of storytelling has disappeared. It was tightly bound to a mode of experience that has disappeared. What writings do the trenches and their aftermath demand? What writing speaks to the moment? Or better, what articulations? For these may not take on the form of the word, this was a man who on several equa- occasions quoted Laszlo moholy line, the illiterate of the future is the person who cannot read a photograph. And in an essay titled Paris, the city in the mirror, declarations of love by poets and artists to the capital of the world, Benjamin argues that Paris has an intimate relationship to the book. The city is seen through the book. Its monuments are built as if they were made for the settings of books, But the books that exemplify his contemporary moment include the photographic volume and the city map. The book of words has merged with the photograph and the diagram when it comes to communicating the modern city. Just as August Sander's service to the contemporary moment is to devise a tremendous physiognomic gallery and his portfolio of types which collect together images of peasants, industrial workers, civil servants, intellectuals, artists, anonymous representatives of every social stratum and walk of life, contains, says Benjamin, inexhaustible material for study of the contemporary social world. Benjamin puts something of this more visually attuned sensibility into his own writing with its graphic vignettes, highly energetic prose, flashes of insight, montaging, and citations, snatching second-order reality, and so on. And he raided the city for documentary energies, as can be seen most clearly in the collection One Way Street, with its subheadings retrieved from street signage and advertisements. Its programmatic opening clause asserts that the languages of mass communication provide the model for modern articulation. He proposes there the urgent communication of the telegram, postcard, leaflet, or photomontage. Quotations at the core of this, quotations ripped from context and set in new constellations, (coughs) city debris picked up on the fly, even the lies of journalism or advertising might allow for the regaining of expressibility (coughs) in an age of degraded communication. In a letter to Gershom Scholem in 1935, Benjamin proposed redemptive quoting as residing at the very core of his method, and he noted his attempt to hold the image of history in the most unprepossessing fixations of being, so to speak, the scraps of being. Those scraps of being that he prized, fragments of everyday existence as recorded in the Arcade's project under headings such as Fashion, The Streets of Paris, Mirrors, the doll, boredom, gambling and prostitution, modes of lighting, all evoke a commitment to the everyday and the ephemera of an aesthetic that in some ways, a surrealist aesthetic, and in some ways by 1935 at the high point of his work on the arcades project, was itself exhausted. He evoked, with a kind of backward look, the scraps of Dada and surrealism. At the same time, though, he merges this with the sense in which life is saturated, as he says in those days, by facts, by new objectivity, by a rationality annexed to rationalisation. Under these circumstances, it's useless to wish for fiction, for the literary, the old-style novelistic, the expansive long creation. Instead, he recommends an inhabitation in in defamiliarized ways of forms of document and factuality, admixed with his own versions of political engagement, writing in One Way Street that significant literary work can only come into being in a strict alternation between action and writing. It must nurture the inconspicuous forms that better fit its influence in active communities than does the pretentious universal gesture of the book in leaflets, brochures, articles, and placards. Only this prompt language shows itself actively equal to the moment. So Benjamin does not write languorous novels, but he does write short stories. And sometimes, or quite often in those stories, he grasps to the device of telling a story within a story. A sea captain tells a passenger a yarn. A friend tells another friend a curious thing that he experienced. A man tells the tale of an acquaintance to another man who relates the story to us. These stories written by Benjamin create layered worlds of citations, enigmas, perspectives, musings on knowledge and fate. They're a kind of equivalent of the microcosmic spaces that Benjamin analysed or better brought into being, such as the arcades. The world within a world the story within a story, lifting the form off itself, making it questionable, critical, a hovering thing, not simply a fiction and not simply not one. Microcosmic worlds are the world and not the world at once. I think the enduring attraction then of Walter Benjamin has something to do with his proposition simultaneously of worldliness, of being in the world and of worlds within worlds a clear-eyed commitment to what gruesome conditions prevail alongside a wide-eyed sense of what could have been different and so might yet be. And this is not just an assertion, but something he instages through his writing, finds ways to articulate in various modes of writing or production, which induces us, we, who would equally like to speak into and out of our (coughs) moment, to follow him to try to actualize him again
3: Thank you very much indeed Esther a wonderful uh, introduction and kind of uh, setting of the scene for our evening we should of course be extremely grateful to Esther as I'm sure you know she's published four books on Benjamin now. this is the critical lives uh, edition published by reaction. We're launching two books tonight on photography which she's edited and translated also published by reaction. And first time in paperback, Benjamin's archive which Esther translated. So many, many thanks for all your work on that as well, Esther. But of course Benjamin, famous for the essay, one of our finest essayists, Brian Dillon, informed and uh, informing the essay um, for us tonight, but also obviously in his own right in many, many different areas. Please welcome Brian now. Brian Dillon, thank you.
2: Thanks very much, Gareth. Um, I've written no books on Walter Benjamin, sadly. When Gareth asked us to say something briefly, 10 minutes or so, um, by way of introducing Benjamin and introducing what he might mean to us now, I think, Gareth, you had an idea that things would go very straightforwardly. Esther would talk about the archive and I would talk about photography. And both of us responded immediately, actually, we want to talk about Benjamin as a writer. And I want to pick up, I I think some of what I have to say, picks up on, on what Esther has described very eloquently to us so far. I find it now extraordinarily difficult to think about Benjamin in an academic fashion. Having been introduced to him as an undergraduate, having written my PhD partly on his work, even at the time, and I'm talking about late 80s, early 90s, I had a kind of sense that the Benjamin that I really loved my Benjamin, was somehow kind of illicit within the Academy. That the kind of attachments that I had to what unashamedly I think we should call the beauty of Benjamin's writing was somehow not quite acceptable. And I remember a very key moment when I realized that my version of an attachment to writers like Benjamin and also Roland Barthes, Susan Sontag, other essayists, and I want to come back to the essay hopefully at the end, was something that didn't really have a place within the academic world. And at that moment, Benjamin became incredibly important to me as an emblem, as an exemplar, for a particular way of practicing the essay today, and a particular way of inhabiting, as Esther says, an extraordinary array of literary, journalistic, and academic forms. It's the thing that I want to kind of come back to and make kind of a fundamental point about, is this sense that he is so skilled at the most fleeting forms, the the tiny book review, the kind of five-line book review. Everything from that, from these miniature forms, up to the great, grand, unfinished, and unfinishable project of the arcades. And so I think about Benjamin now, as it's a simplistic way to put it, but I think about him as a writer. What do I mean by that? I want to suggest just three kind of ways in which it seems to me Benjamin helps us as writers today or has helped me. And the first has to do with a particular kind of slowness in Benjamin's thought and in the experience of reading his work. It's been said many, many times, Susan Sontag says it in her 1978 essay, that Benjamin's writing proceeds by a kind of atomization. Each sentence is whole. Each sentence is a kind of world in itself. And Benjamin says it himself, that with each sentence you have to begin again. So each sentence has its own kind of uh, atomistic kind of place on the page, and you have to start afresh every time. Gershom Sholem, who Esther quoted a couple of times, talked about his friend Benjamin as the most patient human being he had ever met. There's something fascinating in the man and in the work to do with a kind of slowness and a kind of patience. He talks about it. I mean, one can think about, for example, the Arcades Project as an extraordinary act of patience, you know, the amassing of material in the hope, possibly the vain hope, that this will cohere into a pattern, that it will form a constellation, an extraordinarily complex constellation. Benjamin talks about his slowness, and slowness in his mind seems to be related to a particular kind of stupidity in the sense of being stupefied And he talks about it in the Berlin Chronicle, in this fantastic passage, where he recalls walking through the city with his mother. And his mother had a habit of taking each of these walks as a kind of test of her son's ability to deal with kind of practical matters, to orient himself in the city and to just carry out sort of practical things. Esther talked about Benjamin's literal practice of writing on the page, Benjamin talks a lot about handwriting. I'm not sure that he mentions the moment in public where you can't read your own handwriting, but bear with me. So this is from the Berlin Chronicle, which, as you may know, was then reworked in slightly more kind of static fashion as a Berlin childhood uh, around 1900. If it was 30 years before the distinction between left and right had become visceral to me, and before I had acquired the art of reading a street map, I was far from appreciating the extent of my ineptitude. And if anything was capable of increasing my disinclination to perceive this fact, it was the insistence with which my mother thrust it under my nose. On her, I lay the blame for my inability even today to make a cup of coffee. To her propensity for turning the most insignificant items of conduct into tests of my aptitude for practical life, I owe the dreamy recalcitrance with which I accompanied her as we walked through the streets, rarely frequented by me, of the city center. But to this resistance, in turn, is due who knows how much that underlies my present intercourse with the city's streets. Above all, a gaze that appears to see not a third of what it takes in. I remember, too, how nothing was more intolerable to my mother than the pedantic care with which, on these walks, I always kept half a step behind her. My habit of seeming slower, more maladroit, more stupid than I am, had its origin in such walks, and has the great attendant danger of making me think myself quicker, more dexterous, and shrewder than I am. And I'm very attracted to this idea of the usefulness of one's own stupidity and slowness. And I think it's one one way, one slightly extreme way, but Benjamin's own way, of describing his practice of care and curiosity. Curiosity is etymologically linked to an idea of care, an idea of precision. And this extraordinary attention that he pays to such a myriad of details, the small things. Gershom Sholem again says, you know, for uh, what Benjamin really loved was the tiny things, the small things, details like Garrett's M&M merchandise. One way of describing that attention is a kind of raptness and a kind of stupor and a kind of stupidity and a slowness and I think that, in a way, this is one of the things that disqualifies him, in the mind, particularly of Adorno. By the mid-1930s, when Adorno and Horkheimer and the Frankfurt School had uh, escaped to the States, there is this astonishing and tragic exchange of letters, which I'm guessing some people will know. In 36, is it or 38? Um, 36. 36. Um, in which Adorno writes of Benjamin's, Benjamin's work on the arcades project, and he produces the text that subsequently was published as the Baudelaire book. So it's a kind of summary or a kind of conspectus of the entire arcades. And Adorno writes, Unless I'm very much mistaken, your dialectic is lacking in one thing, mediation. You show a prevailing tendency, to relate the pragmatic contents of Baudelaire's work directly and immediately to adjacent features in the social history and economic features of the time. So he's accusing him in a sense of being what you might at that point call a vulgar Marxist. You substitute metaphorical expressions for categorical ones. The mediation which I miss and find obscured by materialist historical evocation is simply the theory which your study has omitted. The theological motif of calling things by their names tends to switch into the wide-eyed presentation of mere facts. And that phrase has, that's the phrase from, from this correspondence that has lived on. The wide-eyed presentation of mere facts. Benjamin responds, aggrieved of course, but he says, when you speak of a wide-eyed presentation of mere facts, you characterize the true philological attitude. This attitude was necessary not only for its results, but had to be built into the construction for its own sake. So there's this idea in Benjamin's conception of scholarship, of study, and of writing, of a kind of wonder, a kind of awe, and a kind of pause before the object. And this is one of the things that I think is extraordinarily useful, beautiful, profound in his work, is this sense of the pause, the slowness of approach to his object. Alongside this slowness, or a kind of creeping intellect, a kind of crepitating, crawling approach to the this myriad of tiny objects, of tiny phenomena, is what might be its opposite, um, though I'm not sure, and that is that moment, those moments in Benjamin's work where everything crystallizes in a particular image, Um, a particular image, a static image, where if you know the work of art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction essay, then you'll know this is the moment of shock. If you know the book on German tragic drama, on Baroque drama, you'll know it as the tableau, the moment in which everything crystallizes as a kind of scene of ruination. We know this in English drama from those moments, for example, at the end of revenge tragedies, when the stage is strewn with dead bodies and everything freezes in that moment. Everything becomes clear at that moment. Both in terms of subjective, kind of tragic stories, but also in terms of history. And Benjamin envisages this, these moments in Baroque drama as moments of ruination, um, where every, the world history is presented at a mo- frozen at a precise point in its decay, in its destruction. And Benjamin's work is full in, in, at all of the registers at which he works. Whether he's writing about 17th-century drama, whether he's writing about the arcades in the, in the 19th century, whether he's writing about film and photography, it's filled with these moments in which a static image suddenly erupts. Erupts is the word because that's, it, it explodes, he says, in the essay on the concept of history. Something explodes out of the past and presents us with this kind of sudden eruptive static image. And the great moment where this becomes a ki- it becomes obvious that this is a kind of method for him, it's a way of writing, it's a way of conceiving how you, how you work as a writer, is in again in the Berlin Chronicle, where he talks about attempting to make a map of his own life. He says, I've long indeed for years played with the idea of setting out the sphere of life graphically on a map. First, I envisaged an ordinary map, but now I would incline to a general staff's map of a city centre, if such a thing existed. Doubtless it doesn't, because of ignorance of the theatre of future wars. I've evolved a system of signs, and on the grey background of such maps, they would make a colourful show if I clearly marked the houses of my friends and girlfriends, the assembly halls of various collectives, from the debating chambers of the youth movement to the gathering places of communist youth, the hotel and brothel rooms that I knew for one night, the decisive benches in the tier garden, the ways to different schools, and the graves that I saw filled, the sights of prestigious cafes whose long forgotten names daily crossed our lips, the tennis courts where empty apartment blocks stand today, the halls emblazoned with gold and stucco that the terrors of dancing classes made almost the equal of gymnasiums. So this notion that the entire The flux, the temporal flux of his life and of the city could be frozen in this graphic representation. It's a recurring move, as I say, throughout all all his writings. And it's something that happens quite literally on the page. And the book, which Esther has translated, Walter Benjamin's archive, is filled with extraordinary instances of this, actually in the moment of composition. There's a passage in The Writer's Technique in 13 thesis where he says no it's not sorry it's in one way street it's in somewhere else in one way street where he's talking about pros and he says work on many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe FDA-approved
0: weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good prose has three steps. A musical phase where it's composed, an architectonic one where it's built, and a textile one where it's woven. It's a fantastic sentence, but it's always deeply confused me. Every time I read that I think, now hang on a second, the textile one comes first, Volter. <laughs> it's clearly not the way that he himself worked, because there isn't a sense, when you look at the, the words on the page, the handwritten words on the page, and when you look at the kind of graphic patterns and constellations that he invents as part of the composition process, it's impossible really to differentiate between these different stages of writing. There isn't a stage of imagining, inventing, constructing, structuring, and then composing, then actually writing. All of these things are happening at the same time, and it's one of the reasons why what you end up with in so many of the great texts is a text that Benjamin thinks is unfinished. It's one of the really extraordinary things, and I'm sure Esther knows this much better than, uh, than I do as a, as a proper scholar of Benjamin, that he never considered these, these, the great famous essays to have actually attained a final form on the page. Some of the ways in which he does this are, I think, really still extraordinarily instructive for us as as writers today. The structures that he invents sometimes take the form of lists. Like all great writers, he's addicted to lists. They take the form of a really quite intense attachment to his own notebooks. There's an extraordinary letter to his friend Alfred Alfred Cohn, which is quoted in in the archive book, where he talks about this beautiful blue Notebook that Cohn has sent him and he's not just absolutely wrapped and attached to this notebook He says everywhere I go people compliment me on my lovely blue notebook So there's a real attachment to the what we call far too easily the materiality of writing Benjamin's not attached to the materiality of writing. He's attached to the materials and the material produces lists maps diagrams constellations, and these constellations take various forms. They might be, for example, um, in one of the most beautiful instances uh, in the book, a pattern of tiny texts, maybe four, five, six lines, that are drafts for a particular text, but they're written as little paragraphs, written at different angles on the page. It's a fantastic kind of almost tachist kind of uh, patterning very sketch-like, and, and, uh, but clearly there's, a, there's an order in mind. And sometimes they take the form of, of very much more structured and hierarchical forms. But what you get in the, the archive book, which is an extraordinary resource, I think, is this sense that for Benjamin, writing is always also visual. It's always also a graphic thing on the page. And that is one of the reasons why he's unable, really, to make these kind of hard and fast distinctions between the moment when you conceive of the work and the moment when you finish it. Because he's never really found, when you look at the the history of his publication during his lifetime, he never really finds the proper graphic representation for the writing. One Way Street is an attempt at it. Adorno talks about in his 1948 essay, the essay as form, he talks about Benjamin as the prime practitioner of one of the things that the essay does best, which is that it presents, and it presents almost visually, it presents graphically, the moment of thought, the moment of the moment of conception, the moment of construction and composition. And Adorno accuses, really fleetingly in passing, he says, these things should not become too atomistic. And it's a kind of late moment. It's, half a decade after Benjamin's death, late moment where, where Adorno was still, still harping on this idea that the drawback in Benjamin's approach, this notion of a kind of slowness, a kind of care and curiosity before the object that produces these graphic representations, that somehow this is still illicit within the practice of theory. To me, that's one of the extraordinary values in, in Benjamin's work still today. It's just this sense of a page that is alive, bristling, and an attempt, finally, to kind of capture that visual bristling on the page. And I'll stop there. Thanks. Well,
3: thank you very much indeed, Brian. And like Esther, I think uh, responses that are way beyond the call of duty of my... Uh, of my uh initial uh, request, if you like, and we urge publication of both pieces uh, post-haste, I think i say, um, so that we can see them bristle on the page as well as in the air, of course. Um, this event is being recorded, so um, when we come to questions, do you think of that? Think of austerity and do the way you see fit. Um, we're going to come to you very shortly because I don't think I can follow those with uh, adequate questions, um, but what I'm going to do, is, first of all, is just to ask Esther to respond, I think. She's been making copious notes, which also have a kind of constellation quality to it on the page. Um, and Esther, if you like to, maybe um, just pick up on some of those hmm. those points that Brian made so well.
4: Yeah, I think I adhered to to Benjamin's idea that you 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 don't properly understand something unless it passes bodily through you and you mm-hmm. write it mm-hmm. down. So always write down what I'm hearing. But I said one of the things I was thinking about was you know, this this strong sense of the spatiality of you know laying. Things out on the page. And Benjamin's attunement to spatiality, his interest in city spaces, in the space of the arcades and so on. Thinking about that in relation to writing and his idea that you must write out your own work again. There's this thing of writing out your fair copy. In that process, (laughs) other things will occur to you. so I'm wondering if that, that's a, a kind of way in which te- temporality comes into the act of writing, that slowness mm-hmm. is another type of temporality, isn't it? And this layering, it's not just that these things are, are set out in space to produce constellations between each other on, on the page. There's also an accretion of, of different moments of writing that should somehow also parallel the extraordinary sense of time that one gets within Benjamin with all of this arcing between past and and present and the eruption of the past into the present and then the present uh, arcing back on the past and so on. So I suppose I want to to keep it dialectical, I suppose, in a sense, and think about the ways in which that is also proposing certain kinds of of absorption of, of multiple moments of history which is for Benjamin you know, the, the axis in which this also all comes into to meaningfulness, you know, that he is a historical materialist. You know, that, that when adorno accuses him of just this sort of wide-eyed staring at, at things as if he's he's frozen a moment, it, it, precisely in his look, he's seeing back through into the past, into all sorts of chains of, of connection. So if It is a freeze-framing, it, it's one that has tightly encapsulated within it uh, time you know, as, well, as well as space, it's bristling in, in that
2: Yeah, way. I think that, that's absolutely right. He's, he, he talks at some point in the um, Trauerspiel book about um, uh, Baroque drama leaping out of history into eternity, but that's not really what's happening when, when he institutes or invents these moments, these apparently static moments. You're absolutely right, they're always charged with all kinds of roots, historical, temporal roots, back into the past, to various versions of a uh, of past. In terms, in terms of a sort of practice of writing, he does talk about rewriting one's own work, the fair copy. He also talks about those kinds of moments when one is blocked as a writer, and at that moment you, you should go back and copy out your notes. Mm. So you're, you're not copying something to get it to another state, you're copying it because something will happen. Something will occur in that moment. These these already fragmentary and provisional scraps of text, in casting yourself back into them, something will emerge. It's unlikely to be the finished thing. It's unlikely to be the insight into the finished object, textual object. It's something else. But there's some that seems to me part of that kind of mm. that thing that Sholem talks about. You know, the the patience that.
4: But it's sort of it's it's like you're you're quoting yourself, you know. You you've externalized or alienated a set of thoughts that you then come back to as a kind of different person or in a different time and space, yeah. and so they become something new or something else can be released from them. So I think always there's that productive use of a kind of inconsistency, mm-hmm. which is interesting, which makes it so sort of rich and variegated and perplexing, but also fruitful. Thank
3: you both. I mean, there are enormous numbers of points of departure from both pieces, but I'm really just going to perhaps ask, ask one question uh, or encourage responses on just one point perhaps to do with this idea of form and how it moves off the page into the street and into the urban space. He celebrates and advocates and, and uh, takes forward the essay form so profoundly. and I wonder if perhaps both of you could think briefly about the essay form, obviously through Benjamin, but the essay form as the mode of modern life, and as the mode of modern urban life. And I guess for Benjamin, we think of the two key cities, Berlin and Paris, and he has a German identity and he has a French identity in a way, and he informs both those traditions after his death. But is there a, a productive conversation to be had around the idea of the essay as the form of the urban on the page?
2: Yes. But <laughs> it, uh, it uh, as you were saying that I was growing suspicious already of my automatic answer to it, which, which which is that if you think about it in terms of writing about cities, then you can or, or just or writing about landscapes, you can imagine a kind of lineage, you can imagine a tradition that, that harks back where, where Benjamin is the hinge, right, between nineteenth-century versions of that and, and what's come mm. since, and one could talk about Sebald, for example, or or one could talk about writers about London as, as the other kind of pole, the, the unwritten about pole in, in that history. But much more interesting, I think, is to think about those modes of a kind of essayism that are not to do with you know, the, the institution of a kind of vagrant, subjective voice in the city, but rather those, those kinds of writing that attempt to, to ape, to, to imitate the texture of the city themselves. And for me, uh, one of the great revelations in recent years, um, in fact, earlier this year, has been the translation of the radio works. And the way that Benjamin thinks about the radio audience dispersed, usually he's working for quite a localized audience. Later on, the programs he works on are broadcast across Germany, but not many of them. But he thinks about this audience in a really interesting way. He thinks about them as, as this kind of ghostly, presence that, that potentially might speak back and there's, there's some of the most beautiful writings. He considered them himself total hack work, so he said, but there are extraordinary moments of, again, a kind of visual graphic sense. One of the greatest I think is this essay on, um, or lecture, radio lecture, on a brass factory and I can't remember now, maybe Esther remembers which city it's, uh, it's in. It's in the
4: suburbs of Berlin.
2: Yeah. And there's an extraordinary moment where he imagines, he asks the the listener to levitate with him above the factory, to see this factory in plan, and to hover there for a moment, uh, observing the the factory, which is in itself a kind of city. So already, you know, you have the aerial view, and of course that's, you know, it's picking up on the, the sudden massive in the First World War acceleration in aerial photography and photographing cities subsequently, and that, I think, is, is one of the most productive ways to think about Benjamin and the city. Is in those, It, it happens in a lot of the more kind of ephemeral writings. Mm. We're very familiar now, I guess, with the, the Flaneur, and we're familiar with the, the Arcades Project. We, we know a version of Benjamin kind of at large in the city, and, and also going back to the writings of his own childhood in Berlin. But there's something else going on in the more ephemeral journalistic works, I think that has, has something in common with other writers at the time, like Joseph Roth, um, for example. Um, that sense that, that these short forms, um, or Viktor Shlovsky um, earlier in, in Russia, and, uh, that these short forms are capable of, of encapsulating something about that experience. I, mean, I would
4: echo that, because I think that there's something... I mean, it's slightly different to, say, Krakauer, who's working in this foyotinistic way, with a, a huge consciousness of the throwawayness of his little skits for the newspaper, for the Frankfurter Zeitung on the streets in Berlin, and so on. There's a sense in which he knows that's tomorrow's chip paper. Whereas with with Benjamin, what, what strikes me is that whatever form he inhabits, whether it's the review form, so writing about Hessel's book Walking in Berlin as a way of articulating the city, or whether it's radio lectures, or whether it's the classic city portraits like Moscow and Naples, he finds ways of articulating other people's voices. So, or, you know, also going to Marseille with Krakauer and wandering the streets and a sort of collectivity of thought, being with Asia Az- Latsis in Naples or, or Moscow and the way in which other voices sort of come in. And I think that's exemplary in the radio workers as, as well, where he, he often quotes others or quotes the testimony of others, for example, on the Lisbon Earthquake and so on, or brings the listener into it. So, when he's talking about the rental barracks, you know, he's saying, You know, these places, you know, you've walked past them, but have you ever really looked at them? Have you understood how power has produced these miserable living conditions and precisely how money was involved in that? And then there's a sense in which he's always invoking other subjectivities. So, for him, this kind of essayistic form becomes a sort of pooling of of lots of different consciousnesses that can articulate themselves through this, to the point where, I I mean, I love that Rental Barracks essay, because uh, towards the end he's talking about this new form of the skyscraper, and he's seen a photograph in Uhu, this magazine, you know, saying the practical American way, and, you know, is this form going to come to Berlin, and what will it make of us? You know, we get to speculate on how, how we would live different lives if we... Live vertically rather than horizontally, without light, and, and so
2: on. Just briefly, and, and to, to go back to the, the essay in your question, whenever you think that the essay is, is one thing, right, that, that it's a thing with, you know, a personal voice, and, uh, and, and it does the kind of vagrant, wandering thing that Adorno says it does, but it seems like a thing, you know? Go and read Benjamin, because it's all these other things. So he's really good at reminding us of, of the, the possibility of the conservatism, actually, of, of, of most conceptions of the essay.
3: Thank you both very, very much. Um, we're going to work out now. We've got some time, obviously, we'll for thoughts, responses, anything you would like to raise. Let's start with the gentleman there, and then we'll come to the front here. Thank okay, you, yes.
5: Hi, thank you for such a great talk, both of you. Um, I was wondering about um, when you mentioned the radio broadcast, there's one about... Um, the Bastille French state prison. And some of that seems to be about how the prisoners kind of communicate and write to each other. You know, do they have to sort of train a dog to pass notes or do they have to hold one word at a time at their their sort of the cells of cell windows? And I thought perhaps that's kind of similar to one of the popular sort of readings of some of the archive manuscripts that are in this sort of Uh, newest paperback about how Benjamin writes like a man in prison with his kind of tiny handwriting and there's something maybe that speaks to the sort of spatiality and the um, conserving your um, Notebook as much as possible at the same time. So yeah, I wonder if you have any comments on that really.
2: Yeah, I mean um, only sort of uh, very very tentatively, but I think there's something fascinating to do with constraint i mean here's here's a writer who's already extraordinarily constrained right by, by exile and by poverty and by the fate by academic failure by the failure of his colleagues and friends who who are now in new york to publish his work and yet somehow invents for himself still more constraints and is still fascinated by constraint and that that's a real lesson in how a great writer makes things even more difficult <laughs> for themselves <laughs> than necessary, but I think you're onto something. Yes, I mean there's a, there's definitely something about the compression of the word, and and then it's shooting forth. I'd f- totally forgotten about the, the, the Bastille essay. That's
4: no, I was, well, I was just thinking of that sort of powerful image of sort of inventing un, under conditions of incredible restraint, these sort of new new modes of communication, which Happens again and again, doesn't it? In H block, it happened as well. With all these systems of um, communicating and finding other, other modes of expression in order to, you know, on on the one hand, I mean, I think it's a good image because I mean, we can fall very easily into this image that was very powerful. I think in the 1980s, Benjamin as this lone, solitary, tragic figure writing for no one to read, and so on. And it, it really wasn't. True in that way. He had lots of interlocutors, and it's a constant writing of letters. That's one thing I find amazing. He had, for the period he went into exile in the early '30s, he had 28 addresses. And I was thinking, blooming heck, how do you keep up such prodigious sort of correspondence when you're when you're always on the move? But you know that that's sort of the other side of it: finding the modes of of getting it out there, as well as having incredible constraints and also needing those constraints you know, needing to be holed up in the library on, on the one hand because it's warm, on the other hand because there's nothing more you want to do than read old books about Paris to try and figure something out for yourself. So it's, you know, it's that combination of, of things, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's been a fantastic, thanks for again for such a fantastically lucid presentation as somebody who I've found both an inspiration but also unbelievably frustrating as well because he does, at times, uh, drive me crazy. I can't understand what he's talking about half the time, if I'm completely honest, but he does drive you forward at the same time. Uh, the question I have is about childhood, and his, I wonder if you've got any insights into his... Um, it seems that he's got a place in his heart for children and for his own childhood and looking backwards and, at the same time, as, as you pointed out, looking forwards at the same time. He wrote, I think it was something like a manifesto for a proletarian children's theatre, The Berlin Childhood, which you, which you've mentioned... And then, of course, the broadcasts, which were for children listeners. So it seems as though he does have this special place for children. And I'm I'm just kind of curious about what um, insights you might um, have about that.
4: Yeah, I think he's he's been increasingly um, discovered as a theorist of childhood and play, and also the progressive modes of pedagogy. I mean, he was discovered in this way in, in the uh, late 1960s and early 1970s, I think, in Germany, when you could get these pirate editions of proletarian theatre work and it, it sort of meshed with anti-authoritarian mm-hmm. upbringing modes and so on. But it's interesting to see that there, there seems to be an increasing interest in what he has to say about childhood. I mean, partly channeled by, say, the work of, of Michael Rosen, who was responsible for this conference and the radio for program on on pedagogy and Benjamin and child and child literature and so on. I mean, in some ways he he fits into a longer romantic trajectory of the child as, I mean, not as naively innocent. I mean, maybe more Baudelaire's idea of the child as kind of intoxicated or drunk or surrealist in some way. And and he's also very, there's this, um, there's a, a great review of of some children's uh books by tom seidman freud um uh, of women related to Freud, who did these sort of primers for children that that he he you know he, he collected children 's books he liked the the idea of thinking about these the the realms of children's literature and how script relates to or blocks imagination, how illustrations might draw a child in or repel the child. He's very enthusiastic with the kind of anarchy of children scribbling on books. He writes another review called Colonial Pedagogy, which is really critical of some contemporary attempts to modernise the fairy tale by wiping out all of the, the violence within it. And he's strongly insistent that children are Violent and brutal, and you know, in a sense, uh, quite unfair in a, in a way, and, and in love with danger and risk, and you know, he really wants to work out the psychology of the child and to work with that rather than imposing mm-hmm. what he would call moralistic frames with on it. But I on them. But I think, I mean, one of the things, one of my favourite parts, one of the hardest parts to translate of the archives book was his jottings down of his son Stefan's developing interest in language and all the puns and all the surrealist constructions that a child comes up with as they find their way into <coughs> language and reject language in some ways and, and make these sort of illicit connections. And for him, that was an extraordinary resource.
3: Thank you, Brian. You talked about the instability of the text, obviously particularly focused on the Berlin Charter and Chronicle as an example of that. I mean, Do you think that relationship to the text in relation to his own childhood is is an important one because of that, that uh, desire to get close to his own upbringing and of course to then advocate versions of that forward but, but also the impossibility of course of ever settling in that way both in memory and, and in proposition if you like as well
2: Yeah, I find it quite hard to talk about that text because it was kind of a way in for me personally in trying to write about my own childhood and my own first book and. It, my memory of that text, because I just came back to it just kind of briefly before this evening, I hadn't read it in about 10 years, is all just to do with the small spaces, You know, the, the, that extraordinary image of the, the sock turning inside out, and the tiny space, the, the small spaces, the, the grand spaces of the city, the tiny spaces of the, uh, of the apartment. And it's interesting that Esther men- mentions Baudelaire because it's very easy to get a sense with the Berlin childhood and the Berlin Chronicle, a sense that there's a kind of easy sort of nostalgia, sort of, a sort of simple, easy Proustian thing going on. It is somehow charged always with the kind of potential for a kind of violence. It's the kind of violence that Baudelaire talks about in the philosophy of toys, you know, where the, the impulse of the child is to get inside the toy, to find its soul. And if that means that the toy is destroyed, exploded, shattered, then so be it. And there's always, for me, that, that sense that there's always, a, in, in those two texts, the two Berlin childhood texts, this extraordinary sense of unease about those spaces, that they might at any moment be shattered. So, yeah, there's, it's worth kind of pursuing, I think. I mean, clearly people have done this in, in scholarship and texts that I don't know well enough uh, at all. But I think that's, that's the kind of fascinating thing is just that sense that it's ready to all of this world of the domestic the street city is just ready to erupt
4: I think that's that two axes isn't it because in Benjamin's telling us it does erupt in 1914 so you know he's born in 1892 so at that point when he's passing into adulthood war breaks out his pacifist friends kill themselves and it does erupt on the one hand but on the other hand it is also this more a universalizing sort of sense of of the child as as meddler, as he talks about mm. mini imperialist, mm. as yes, yeah, as, as curious. I mean, coming back that notion of of curiosity, and and there's such a tension in in his own biographical works, autobiographical works, with the idea, the ways in which that's been corralled towards war. You know, his school experience at the Kaiser. Friedrich establishment in um, in Charlottenburg in Berlin, horrible militaristic education, and then his relief at being sent to a progressive school at Halbinder and you know, getting involved with um, more ideas of, of children's autonomy and you know lots of Nietzsche and all, all sorts of philosophical stuff going on, but you know about a certain kind of empowerment that's the opposite of this this training a war and power and leadership that's happening in Berlin.
2: And there's, and there's also an extraordinary uh, then period with the, the student movements and a whole kind of conception of adolescence, <coughs> not just for Benjamin, but for that whole generation, precisely yeah. because of what you described.
0: Thank you both, and also particularly thank you for mentioning the academic non-orthodoxy, the beauty of his writing, something that's very unorthodox today. I wonder at the same time whether we are forgetting uh, Benjamin, the theologian, going back to this uh, description, wide-eyed description of facticity, there is an element of faith. He is not a Ian Sinclair, with all respect to Ian Sinclair, he's not a sort of a, uh he's not describing many facets of the same thing. There is a, or I would say, a faith in the organizing, self-organizing uh, ability of phenomena to to provide a movement, an organization, and so forth. So which has to do, Agamben wrote about this, it has to do with uh, a connection with medieval theology. And second, I wonder whether we are f- also forgetting Benjamin the revolutionary Benjamin, because that organizing principle in him is history. I, I do like and I feel very inspired by the appreciation of him as a writer and the essay is absolutely brilliant. But these two aspects, without these two, I'm almost tempted to say provocatively, it would just be a writer. And I think there is something else, a, a play, here, which is complex, and I don't claim to understand it. But I, I'm struck by the absence of these two elements in in, in tonight's discussion.
6: Without asking
3: another question,
6: could I just gloss that? Mm. Because, for instance, I think one example of what you were talking about, you, um, you talked about the images of violence around childhood and so on, and with dolls, but this is a writer who actually wrote a critique of violence. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of just re-asking the question, because I think that there's, there's a lot that I feel wasn't touched on tonight. I mean, again, one more concrete example Uh, We've had a lot about Baudelaire, there's some fantastic stuff obviously in uh, um, what became uh, uh, the book uh, drawn from the arcades, but a huge preoccupation of Benjamin is we find out who the rag pickers are, who picks up the rags. We never find out who picks up the cobbles, he was obviously making a a political revolutionary point. Thank
3: thank you both. Um... Just to bear in mind, obviously, we've only really got a seventy-five-minute event, and, and there's a, a world of, of uh, ideas in Benjamin's work. So, uh, if we can, obviously, uh, let's respond to theology and revolution. <laughs> it's always good to end on a, on a yeah. simple one. Um, no, thank you both, seriously, very much for those those important points. So how do we want to take those important issues well, on? Well,
4: I could. I mean, I would say. I mean, I never uh, would forget him as a revolutionary. I sort of feel my, my whole mission has been to hold on to Benjamin as a revolutionary thinker in particular ways. And I suppose I thought I was channeling that in, um, tonight through through notions of this kind of energy, I suppose, or eruptivity, as well as the, the other, the sober side, the sense of material conditions and power structures within the world. So I think absolutely right that there's driving forces in Benjamin, which which go way back and critique of violence is not, say, a criticism of violence, but an, an anatomy of violence and what might be legitimate and what might be illegitimate violence in relation to various types of strike. And that's at the heart of Benjamin. And things get more complicated when We think about that in relation to theology and how literally we might take notions of the messianic and all that comes out of his final ideas on the concept of (coughs) history. But what I take from that is is a sense in which it, it all only, all of this stuff about parallel lives and what could have been and hope in the past is all directed towards absolute change, although he also conceptualizes that absolute change as really just quite a small step to the side as, as well. So it's a sort of dialectically undercut itself. But yeah, I think, um, you know, it was the august surroundings of this bookshop <laughs> that pushed the, the, the,
2: the, the small step to the side is, uh, speaks to the, the, the question about theology, doesn't it? Because the, the, the arrival of the Messiah would, everything would change, but on, only the tiniest change would happen. The world would remain the same except this t- tiniest change, um, and just to say very briefly, I would not forget about Benjamin as, uh, uh, as theologian. I hope that in a way what I was trying to describe in terms of writing has been, is often described more particularly in terms of a kind of theological moment of this kind of eruption and this kind of uh, sudden image, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there are many things that we didn't touch on uh, this evening, and um, yeah, and, and, and a great deal has been done in recent decades, particularly by um, Agamben and, uh, and others, to, to tease out not just that, that sense that there's, some, there's a messianism going on, but to find those kind of sources, especially in medieval theology.
3: Please do join
2: me to thank, uh, in thanking both Esther Leslie and Brian
3: Dillon for sharing their thoughts. And thank you, Gareth. Thank
2: you, Gareth. Thank, thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.